Good morning. My name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm delighted to be speaking with you uh, today. This summer is, I think, our third in the uh, David series. We're looking at the life of the great King David. You can see some really cool artwork in the back here. It portrays his journey from shepherd to king. And it's a lot more than just a rags to riches or, wow, look at his cool accomplishment story. But instead, this is the meta-narrative or the great big grand picture of the work of almighty and sovereign God, leading his people, comforting them, shepherding them, and bringing their anointed one, their Messiah. So I want to invite you to enter into that study if you haven't seen the first two, I invite you to go to our website and uh, catch up. There's a lot of cool stuff there. And also read along because I'm only picking out snippets and this is a story and so there's all sorts of things uh, in between that I'm leaving out that are really significant. So this is happening in the book of First Kings. And today uh, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about uh, the question that many of you have asked me before that I've never gone for, I've kind of tiptoed around or avoided or played shy but up until this point, but this morning I may even uh, dive into the realm of sovereignty. In other words, those big questions that we Christians like to have when we want to have an argument or an in-house debate and we talk about big words like Calvinism and Arminianism. Ooh, right? Calvinism and Arminianism. It sounds almost like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, here we go. What is this pastor going to do this morning? Well, first of all, before I even talk, what I want you to know is I'm not going to go through like a theological exposition and a, and a very extensive detail of these doctrines. But what I do want you to see is that God is at work here in this text and here in this room as well. God is at work. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's doing his thing. Yeah, we're here and we're involved in some way, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's God who accomplishes his own will. So you'll see that in a really neat way playing out in this life of David, particularly in today's text, where there's all these sort of ups and downs, lefts and rights and swings and movements, and, and you're kind of like watching this thing play out, and you see human beings involved and making decisions and one going the right way and another going the wrong way and you see God getting involved and you're like, okay, so how does this work? Who is driving this thing forward? Because we see people making decisions that lead to bad stuff. We see people making decisions that lead to good stuff. So is it just all about people and their decisions? But then we turn the page and we see God sort of overriding or trumping their decisions and doing other things. And so you're like, okay, so is it all God and people don't matter? How does this thing work? And it's really cool as you watch these next few events in the life of King David to watch how there is this, what I would call a synergy between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's a slide. This is what I'm referring to. There is a synergy or working together, a strange 
way in which this mysterious, all-powerful God works even while giving us the ability to make decisions. So we're going to look at that a bit today in today's passage. And really, what I want you to come away with is this. I haven't written this down on a slide, so this is one you'll actually have to write down on paper if you're taking notes. Is this. This is the theme that the significance of sovereignty is an unshakable faith which leads to unstoppable lives. The significance of sovereignty is an unshakable faith which leads to unstoppable lives. It's not just an in-house debate where we like to sort of tickle our intellects and enjoy rubbing each other and going back and forth, but instead what it is is it's a real and present doctrine that determines how successful how, how much you latch on to this will determine how successful you are in life. In other words, to the degree that you affirm the sovereignty of God will, will enhance the foundation of your faith to such an extent that you will either rise or fall. That's what we see in the following uh, passage today. So, said another way, here's, a, here's one author who kind of speaks about this synergy. This is what he says, and we'll come back to this later. Uh, Tom Constable says, God will accomplish his purpose regardless of man's personal response to him. However, man's response to God's revealed will determines a person's own success or failure. In this text, what you'll see is it plays out like this. Each person, each man, David and Saul, had his own opportunity Each of them did. They had a choice to make, sort of. They made their responses, and each of them experienced the consequences of their response. But all of them, both those who rejected God and those who followed God, cooperated in fulfilling God's ultimate purpose. So what you see then playing out is this. You'll see two different characters today. One is Saul. The other is David. And in those two characters, you'll see the contrast. Saul is kind of the Ichabod, if you will. The glory has departed. David, on the other hand, is the first messianic, real messianic or anointed figure in the Old Testament. So you have Ichabod versus a Messiah. Saul gets an evil spirit. David gets the Holy Spirit. Saul sees by his eyes and is worried about what human beings think. David sees by his heart and is worried about what God thinks. So through these, through these scenes that we're showing you today, I hope to prove to you that the significance of sovereignty is an unshakable faith which leads to an unstoppable life. So with that, I'd invite you to turn, if you have a Bible, to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't, that's okay. We have one you can borrow. It's blue and in the back. Or you can just pay attention up on the screen. And we'll read uh, a couple different sections that kind of go together. One from chapter 16 and one from chapter 18. This is 1 Samuel 16 followed by 1 Samuel 18. It says this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to speak, to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit of God from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and, became, and David became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Now, skipping down a couple of chapters over the Goliath thing, which we looked at last week, to chapter 18, continues, and it says this, And David went out, and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And Saul said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we're saying is essentially this, that the doctrine of sovereignty is significant because what it does when you affirm it is it creates in you an unshakable faith that leads to an unstoppable life. Today, between the contrast of these two characters, you'll see someone who does, although king, does not affirm the sovereignty of God, and a shepherd who does. And then you will see which one is unshakable and which one is unstoppable. So there are three points, I think, that arise quickly from this text that I'd like to show you as we walk through it today. And the first of which, or actually all three of them are right here. Uh, the first of which is that the Spirit determines success. That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit determines success. 
The second is that God directs all things. And the third part will look, so then what do we do or what is our response? How does this apply to me? The fact that the Spirit determines success and God directs all things, how does that apply to me? So we'll start with the first one, the Spirit determines success. Going back to David's anointing in verse 13, what you saw was that when Samuel poured the oil on him, the text colorfully says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and that, in essence, uh, it never departed, or the Lord was with him. This is kind of a cool picture because it gives the image of, of a rushing wind or a storm or something blowing in and all of a sudden becoming a part of And this is what David experienced. And what you see, as you look at Scripture, I think it's very convincing that basically when God shows up, people are a success. Regardless of nearly which Old Testament character you look at, nearly all of them had the same thing said of them, and that is that the Lord was with them. So, for example, if you go back to the patriarchs, Jacob has it said very specifically of him, When God comes to Jacob and says, hey, I'm going to bless you. You know, you're going to go through all this crazy stuff, but I promise you'll be a success. And Jacob's like, why? How do I know? What can you do to prove that I will be okay? Well, here's what I'll do. I'll go with you. Jacob, uh, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. So Jacob is successful because the Lord God is with him. Can you think of another character in Scripture who follows shortly after the patriarchs whom God is said to be distinctly with, regardless of where he's at? Who? Joseph, absolutely. Look what the Lord says to Joseph. Uh, Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph, and as a result, because God was with him, he became successful. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master, and his master saw, wow, the Lord is with him. And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed uh, with his hands. So when God is with Jacob, when God is with Joseph, they're a success. Well, the children of Israel are in Egypt for a little while, then someone has to get them out. Who's that? Moses. Now, did Moses deliver them? Because he is an amazing uh, deliverer of speeches, and he was really articulate, and he was strong and powerful and wise and brave and good? No, of course not. He was afraid. He was incapable, he was incompetent, but God was with him. And as a result, look what happens in Exodus 3. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses argues and he says, but God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, Moses, you're really asking the wrong question at that point. You've really entirely missed it. Jacob and Joseph should have illustrated to you the fact that it doesn't matter who you are. Instead, the only thing that matters is who I am. You're totally asking the wrong question. If David had gone into the fight with Goliath, he would not have gone into it based on who he was. Remember, David was like this, and Goliath was like this. If we stop there, we don't go any further. That's where Saul and David's brothers and everybody else stopped. Look at me. I'm too small. I can't fight. I'm not stepping in. 
That would be unwise. That would be stupid. That would be foolish. That would be harmful. <laughs> I'm like this. Giant's like this. But that's not the question. If the Lord is with you, then yes, you are like this, and the giant is like this, but God is like this. So you can fight. So the Lord replies to Moses. He says, yes, <laughs> verse 12, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve me on this mountain. You're coming back to this very spot. <laughs> Just to rub it in a little bit. I will be with you. That's what matters, Moses. Not you. Me. Joshua, the same thing. We quote this verse all the time. All the time. Write it on the inside of your grad gifts and all this other stuff. Be strong and courageous, right? Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. It's so motivating. And we stop there, right? We just cut off the verse. We're done. Go, 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 you. Wait a minute. That's Planet Fitness. That's not church. <laughs> it's not about you. You're not it. This is not the you can do it speech at all. This is the you can't. This is the you're this big and the giant's this big. But... God is this big. Be strong and be courageous. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you're so cool, you're so tough, you'll be able to do it on your own? No. Be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid, because when you trust in the sovereignty of God, you have an unshakable faith and an unstoppable life, and therefore, the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Now you're good. That is what gets you through. Not that you can do it, speech. So you go through and you look at Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and to today's text, David. And what does it say of him? 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings. Why? Because David was awesome? Because David was so smart. David was rich, famous, wealthy, powerful, good-looking. Everybody liked him. He had everything he wanted. Everything went his way. No, that's not it. For, because, on account of the fact, the reason for this is, capital F-O-R, the Lord was with him. There's one reason and one reason alone for David's success. The Lord is with him. David is successful because God is with him. I am 100% convinced with no doubt whatsoever. You study scripture in any way whatsoever and you'll find this pattern all throughout. Start at the beginning, work to the end. Look, every single hero of the faith has this set of them. Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets, the apostles, the early church, the reformers, awakenings, revivals, missions, movements, even today, the same is true. What determines your success, up or down, rise or fail, is not you, but the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit determines success. Look at the book of Acts. Church is moving forward. Why? Because the power of the Spirit is there. What makes or breaks, win or fail, is the power of the Spirit. Well, then that was just David, right? <laughs> that was just the people of old. Surely that's not me. Surely that's not you, right? You should be shaking your head like this now. No Though you are little in your own eyes, church, are you not? Are you not the Lord's anointed? 
The Lord anointed you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, It is God who establishes us. Oh, it's not me. No, it's God. And He has anointed us and put His permanent, irrevocable seal on us, giving us what? Oil, as He did David? No. Instead, His Spirit. Where? On our skin? No. In our hearts. Temporarily? No. Instead, as a guarantee. We have success in what we will do if the Lord is with us. And the Bible says that He is. And that's an encouragement. So the first point I want to make to you in this text is not isolating David or any of the heroes of the faith from us, but instead uniting them to us and using them as a springboard to show how God can move through us. From the beginning of time all the way up until the end, the same is true. If God is with you, you're a success. And the New Testament says God is. That power is right there inside of you. The most powerful force in the entire world lives inside of you. You have that power. The Holy Spirit determines success. Number one. Number two, God directs all things. When you talk about God's sovereignty, you have to say that he directs all things. Now, the way we're going to walk this out, and you'll even see this in this chapter, and it'll bring up some of those questions that we're always asking. Well, what about evil? And what about human decisions? And what about this? And what about that? You'll see that in all three realms in this, in this passage. You'll see God's direction of things in the divine realm. You'll see God's direction of things in the evil realm. And you'll see God's direction of things in the human realm as well. So let's look at the first then, the divine realm. Verse 13 of chapter 16 says that God, basically the Holy Spirit, rushed upon David. Essentially, this one's pretty simple. When God the Father says to God the Spirit, hey, go over there, he does it. And there's not a lot of argument. There's perfect unity, there's perfect submission, there's perfect love, it's the perfect trinity, and it works. This is pretty clear. Most of us probably wouldn't have an issue with this part. God directs all things in the divine realm. We even may think of it like this. You know, we're on earth. God's not so involved, but he's sitting up there in heaven, and everything there is good while everything here is going awry. Such is not the case. God is fully and equally in control in every realm, even in hell. The evil realm. Verse 14 says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is really strange, and theologians and philosophers and people go back and forth all the time, well, what does it mean? Is it uh, like, you know, was he manic-depressive, or was he demon-possessed, or was he just bothered on the outside by the demon? And the text really doesn't answer that question. It somewhat eliminates the fact that It makes clear by saying God sent it. This was an evil spirit. It's not anything weird, but it's an actual evil spirit. And what we see, I think, plays out like this. This is from the the Apologetic Study Bible. It says, God, who is master of all the created order, the land and the sea, the heavens and the earth and everything in them, will use even demons against their will for his own 
redemptive purposes. Even the demons have to obey God if he so decides. So what then with Saul and David, where Saul is making bad decisions and experiencing the consequences of his actions, he is involved in this some way as well, right? Right. Here's how that plays out. God created a universe with built-in rewards and punishments that reinforce divine moral law. Saul had lived a life of chronic disobedience to God, and therefore he opened himself up to this demonic oppression. It was a form of punishment. God sent it because of Saul's disregard for moral order. But it wasn't just punishment. It was also intended to drive him to repent and turn back to the Lord. You know, the real advice that Saul's friends shouldn't have, should have given him is, don't just get a harpist. You know, that's good. Music therapy will help. But repent. Say you're sorry. Let God do what God is going to do and be a part of the solution instead of, an op- instead of being an obstacle. God has anointed a new king. You should encourage him. You can support him and you can be a blessing. <laughs> Would you like to do that, Saul? He doesn't get that, though, does he? Instead, it's entirely different. And so you see God's sovereignty playing out here, first in the divine realm, secondly, even in the evil realm. God sends the evil spirit. And third, in the realm that we're probably most concerned about, the human realm, the human realm. Proverbs 21 two set, uh, 1 and 2 says it like this. That, listen, this is very important. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon, right? Most of them. Who is Solomon? David's son. I think, do you think, maybe, just maybe, he had this story in mind when he started to write stuff like this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Whether it's David, whether it's Solomon, even whether it's Saul. Consider Saul. God removed the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit. And now Saul's royal advisors are telling him, hey, get a harpist to come play for you, and that'll help you out. Do you see the irony in this? Saul himself, the very one who is the obstacle to David taking the throne, actually becomes the means by which David comes into the court. (laughs) Saul invites his nemesis or his adversary or the guy who's going to take his place in God makes it such that Saul needs help, and it just so happens that the very guy who can help happens to be the one whom Samuel, the prophet, has already anointed. God is clearly at work. Even in Saul, even in the heart of a sinful king, God is doing his thing. And so in other words, what you see is that it is God, not David, who is promoting or propelling David to kingship. God, Yahweh, is responsible for David's first steps to the throne. Now that's really significant because later in his life, David is going to be challenged as to his right to rule. And naturally, the people are going to ask the question, well, what gives you the right? Because originally, it was from the tribe of Benjamin and this guy named Saul, the son of Kish. Now we have someone from a different place, from a different dad, from a different tribe, um, that somehow didn't get passed down. 
So what that tells us is either A, you took the throne by force, it was a military coup, and you just killed all his family and took it yourself, or B, you used political intrigue, cunning, and ploys to accomplish your power play. And such is not the case either way. It's totally different. Instead, who is responsible for moving this thing forward? It's God. David didn't seek a place in the, in the court. He just happened to be able to play the harp, and all of a sudden, he's standing in front of the king. I actually know a guy a little bit like this. Uh, it was one of the first or second marriages I performed, and at the time, he was serving as a Marine in the uh, presidential security detail. So he was uh, guarding the president. He, you know, the guys you see with the nice suits and stuff, he, they kind of laugh at those guys because they're sort of ornamental to them. No offense if you're out here and you're one of those guys. But he's one of those guys that's hiding in the bushes or on the roof. You don't see him at the press conference, but he's there. So here's this guy. He's hiding in the bush. And one day he's off and he's playing the piano a little bit. And he happens to play really well. And somebody hears him and they're like, well, can you? He's like, yeah, this is what I do. He's like, get dressed, be ready in five minutes. Boom. He's in the office with the president, and he's playing before him because he could do that. Did he seek that out? Of course not. That's God's sovereignty at work. You see the same thing happening here with David. David's just out in the field guarding his sheep, playing his harp, and waiting for the next bear lie, and all of a sudden someone's like, by the way, you, get in. <laughs> You're now in the king's court. Okay, whatever you say, God is at work. So God basically opened the door to the palace for David without David even having to knock. This is the way the Lord works. So I would say it like, or actually there's a better way of saying it. This is the way Bill Arnold says it. In this way, the text illustrates how God works behind the scenes in everyday affairs of believers' routine activities in ways that are often indiscernible except in retrospect. We don't even get it when it's happening. We have no idea. And then looking back, we usually go, oh, that kind of hurt a little. <laughs> I got it. I get it. That makes sense. Now I see. As Christians, it's funny, we're committed to this. We say all the time, yeah, we believe God's sovereign. We believe he's in control. We're, we're the ones who are committed to the idea that God is at work in our lives, directing and guiding, and in some instances, like Jonah, even cajoling. But we often go about our everyday lives, our activities, and our businesses without much thought to what God's desire might be in any given set of circumstances. We're not consciously aware of the specifics of His involvement. We're not frequently reminded that God is working behind the scenes to enable us to fulfill his greatest and best for our lives. We're often confused about how it all fits together. How can God's call and purpose for my life possibly be related to the messy affairs around me? These often seem completely at odds with what God would expect and be achieving in me. This is the answer that I think I receive most uh, frequently on Facebook this week when I ask the question, hey, what do you think about God's sovereignty? And there are a lot of different responses, you know, and a lot of times in the divine realm, we're like, sweet, awesome, God is powerful and good, yay. In the evil realm, wow, it's kind of scary, but okay. 
In the human realm, well, it gets a little bit tricky. Because I don't see it directly, and I don't understand. And I'm especially concerned about somebody else trying to make my decisions for me, because I don't really like that. So how is it that God is in control of my life? Because I really like it when he delivers me. That, I can say, yay God, you're sovereign. But where it gets tricky is when all of a sudden I'm suffering. And then I don't know how that plays out. I've asked myself that question on a number of occasions. And I think, in a lot of ways, it's still left to us in mystery. But we do have one really good example. <laughs> There's one place we can look that we know is completely free from sin and was human in every way like as we are. That's Christ. When you look at Jesus, you really got to ask the question, how did this guy stay sane? I mean, I, I actually mean that. How did he stay mentally sane? Because of all the pressure, all the intensity, all the turmoil, all the rejection, all the pain. Basically, when you add it up, he faced every single crisis a human being can imagine. He faced, I'll just list a few, ready? He faced an identity crisis. His family rejected him, right? We don't want to know this guy, he's crazy. <laughs> His family rejected him. Identity crisis. Finances, he was poor. Man, he was poor. Career. Yeah, it was pretty much crumbling. At one point, he's like, woohoo, go, go, go. Another point, they're like, kill him. <laughs> what? That's not a good career move. The scapegoat. He took the fall for everyone. He was unfairly accused. He was blamed for everything. He was humiliated. And ultimately, he loses his health, right? We're talking about a sore hip. He's got a pretty sore back. everything and he knew it was coming so how does he get up in the morning put on his sandals and go out the door how does he do that i think there's really only one answer and that's by faith really the answer is the same as it is for you and me by grace through faith even jesus had to have faith that things would work out big time <laughs> Way more than us. I think Jesus was successful because not only is he God, obviously, but his absolute submission to the meticulous sovereignty of God. Jesus submitted to the Father's will in every circumstance. Not my will, but yours. His submission to the sovereignty of God exceeded any other. He was perfectly in line with that every single time. He was absolutely committed to God's glory and he had perfect confidence in God's righteousness and God's justice and God's wrath that God would vindicate him and that God was good and that God loved him and God would show mercy. That's how you go through something like what he did. You got to believe that God's good. And as soon as we get in that tough spot, we start asking those questions, don't we? We say, well, I don't know. This is tough. Is God good? Well, if he's good, then how come he let this? I thought he was sovereign. If he was surely sovereign, he would have stopped this. But you've got to overcome that hurdle and truly believe that no matter what, God is good. And if you don't, you're going to end up like Saul. But if you do, then you can make it through. Jesus shows us in every way that the significance of sovereignty, that knowing 
that his father was in complete control, gave him the faith to be able to get out of the bed in the morning, take the next step and say, yep, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I knew a guy once, no kidding, had a, had a brain tumor. And it was kind of an interesting experience. He was a little bit older than I am now. He had kids in high school. And it was one of the bad ones. And he's pretty much given six months and you're gone. And that's basically what happened. Best brain surgeons around. Nothing could be done. He was in trouble. His daughter, he's never going to see graduate from high school or married. His son's in college. It's a bad spot. But every day you go into his house and you visit him, you anoint him with oil, you pray. And he says the same thing each time. Everything's going to be okay. Like, what? What do you mean? Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to die. Well, yeah. Everything's going to be okay. His absolute, complete confidence and faith in the meticulous sovereignty of God even in the brain tumor. He can truly tell his daughter, everything's going to be okay. You're not going to have dad anymore. I'm not going to see you graduate from high school. I'm not going to walk you down the aisle. I really wanted to do that. But everything is going to be okay. That's faith. And that's real faith. And to have that, boy, you've got to believe in the power and the sovereignty of God that he will make everything okay. If you don't, <laughs> what is there? It's all a wash. Sovereignty of God is a beautiful doctrine, and you, I say, should truly accept it. What it does not do is it does not produce a fatalistic determinism. It's not like, oh, okay, well, if God's sovereign, I don't have to whatever, nah, 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 I'm done. doesn't matter. No. Instead, what it does is the exact opposite. It produces worshipful assurance and rest. It is not, since God is sovereign, none of my decisions or actions matter. It's actually the exact opposite. Because God is sovereign, then all of my decisions and all of my actions matter. Because God is sovereign, he will vindicate me. He will deliver me. He will make sure that this will be okay. Because he's sovereign. If he's not sovereign, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no hope. The devil got away. And you're done. But because he's sovereign, he can make sure the devil doesn't. And that's a beautiful thing. God is sovereign. Here's another way of saying it. I'm going to read this again. It's a little bit long, but I think it's helpful and then we will apply it directly to our life. Here's the message summary. Here's what we're trying to say through all of this. Read the passage, study the life of David, and see if this isn't true. God will accomplish his purpose regardless of man's personal response to him. However, man's response to God's revealed will determines a person's success or failure in life. First Samuel teaches us the methods of a sovereign God. All territory is within God's jurisdiction. Right, Jonah? Right. Every person is under his control. All events are in his hands. All of God's plans and purposes are moving towards accomplishment. He makes sure he even makes use of antagonistic facts and forces like demons, as well as positive facts and forces. 
He also makes use of all the agents he has chosen to use regardless of their responses. God's ultimate victory is independent of the attitudes and actions of individuals and groups of people toward him. Nevertheless, the ultimate destiny of individuals and groups of people depends on their attitudes and actions towards him. Look how it plays out with these two. Saul was disobedient. He became God's instrument and experienced destruction. David was obedient. He was God's instrument and experienced deliverance. My attitudes and actions do not determine God's ultimate victory. That's assured. But they do determine my destiny. Everything depends on my choices and me regarding my destiny. Nothing depends regarding God's ultimate victory. God uses all people, loyal and rebellious, to produce his ultimate purposes. However, we determine the outcome of our lives by our attitudes and responses towards him. So there it is. Sovereignty and free will. You got it? Figured out? I imagine I've said something, regardless of which your camp you're in, Arminian, Calvin, whatever, that's rubbed you one way or another. But this is the way I see it playing out in the Bible. It doesn't really set out to answer those questions of theological constructs that comes thousands of years after the event. Instead, what it does is say, this is how David became king. Watch God work. Watch his sovereignty. Now, what should your response be? Well, the response, I think, is this. The significance of sovereignty leads to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is considered the hall of faith or the great heroes and and the record of their exploits. And the reason that they accomplished what they did is because of their faith. Because they believed in God's sovereignty, they had an unshakable faith, which led to an unstoppable life. So, like David, they are motivated by God's glory, confident in their anointing, and as a result, running full speed ahead. Just like David and Goliath. When you live lives like this, I guess the author of Hebrews asks the question rightly and says, what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell tell the stories of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. But, as it were, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They overcame, Revelation says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So much so that they did not love their lives so as to shrink from death. That's faith. That's for real. 
How does this impact you and me? How does that impact us? Look, when Saul tries to kill David, he's bound to miss, right? He tries twice. David could have been sitting within three or four feet of him, and he grabs that spear, and he hurls it as he's done a hundred times before, as hard as he can, and the spear goes like this, into the ground. Why? It's not time. It's not time for David to die yet. God has already anointed him. He's going to the throne. You can throw as many spears as you want, and it doesn't matter. Keep throwing, Saul. Good luck. You're not going to hit him. It's impossible. Just like Jesus. His time had not yet come until it did. And when it did, it did. But up until then, indestructible. What about David? He only needs one stone. And I don't think it would have mattered if he threw it in the exact opposite direction. (laughs) That stone would have turned right around and come back and whoop, found David right in the head. You really think a little guy like that can hit at that precision? My kid just got a slingshot for his birthday. We're not there yet. That stone was guided and so was the spear. And you try to figure out who's guiding it, there's only one answer. God. The Holy Spirit determines success. When you're with God and you're flinging the stone, it hits its mark every time, no matter how stinky, lousy shot you are. And when you're not and you throw the spear and you're not with God, it doesn't matter how good you are, it misses. What I'm saying is this, if you really believe in the sovereignty of God, if you accept that doctrine as true, then you should have faith just like the people in Hebrews 11 to such a point where your faith is so unshakable that it leads to an absolutely unstoppable life. God, we praise you for you are good. You're perfect and your love endures forever. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, we pray that you will increase our faith. It's hard to believe that sometimes, Lord. We don't always see it. We don't see giants falling in front of us. We see little things when we look back. But we want to see you at work for real every day in power in our lives. We pray that we would humble ourselves. That we would submit to your will. That we would pursue your glory that we would love your Son and declare your gospel in the power of the Spirit from now and forevermore. Amen.